Hey, Sales Life Nation, it's your host, Tyler Lindley. Today I have Rajiv Harjay Nathan on the show. How you doing, Rajiv? I'm doing great. First time I've been introduced as Hard J Nathan. I like it though. <laughs> Maybe that should be your nickname is Hard J. So uh, also known as Raj though. So I'll probably call you Raj for most of the show. Rajiv is the founder of Startup Hype Man, which is a really cool business then and consulting agency hybrid model that you do, which we're definitely going to get into. But we're also going to talk about this idea of how you think B2B professionals should think like an entertainer. What does that really mean to you, Rod? First off, thanks for having me, Tyler. So this idea of think like an entertainer, this is like my entire ethos in the work that I do is what it's built around. And I really fundamentally believe that if you're a CEO, if you're a founder, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a sales leader, if you're the rep, stop thinking like an executive, stop thinking like an entrepreneur, and instead think like an entertainer. The reason I say that is because if you look at the vast majority of B2B companies and the way they communicate, it is highly technical, it is dry, it's rote, and it fails to make a really impactful connection with their audience. And it's really, in my opinion, it's why so many B2B companies just blend in Mm. with other companies who do something similar enough. But if you think like an entertainer, let's really think about what that means. Think like an entertainer is all about putting your audience first because that's what an entertainer cares about is they have one one question in their mind. They say, how do I make an emotional connection with this crowd? How do I elicit an emotional response? How do I get them leaving this arena buzzing about something? But by just having that mindset out of the gate, automatically, they end up looking better as the entertainer, as the performer. Mm -hmm. But they don't say, how do I make myself amazing Mm -hmm. to make them like me? It's the other way around. It's how do I put on the best show possible for them? Mm -hmm. By nature, they will like me. Mm -hmm. And the joke I like to say is, if you think about... So Tyler, who is your favorite music artist or band? Oh man, that's a tough one. Up here in the back, I've got Al Green just because he was a favorite growing up. My parents listened to a lot of soul music. So I'll say for that era, Al Green. Okay, so let's go with Al Green. Like when Al Green hit the stage, Mm. say he's at like a bigger arena. He doesn't hit the stage being like, hey, how's everyone doing tonight? Yeah, we're doing great. Okay, awesome. So check it out. Tonight, we're going to play every song that's ever been released in my entire catalog. (laughs) Not just the greatest hits, which is what you probably want to hear, but everything. Cover to cover, all 12 albums that I've put out over the years. (laughs) Not just the finished songs, but also the B-sides and some of the working drafts we've been doing in our garage recently <laughs> that we're not really sure if the notes even hit or not, but they're really important to us. And, <laughs> and, and because it's important to me and my band on stage, I, I want to make sure that you know, because it's so important to me. It's going to take about 25 hours to get through it all. Who's with me? <laughs> no one. Yeah. Right? Even, even a diehard Al Green fan right. will be like, right. oh, uh, I don't want to sit through all this. Oh, uh, this is going to be awful. <laughs> so... <laughs> so even the best entertainer doesn't do that to their audience because the audience would not want to sit through that. You'd be like, I got to go feed my kids. I got to get home. I got to eat dinner. Right. But what are most B2B companies doing? They're executing a version of that. Yep. They are saying, Hey, look at us. We're really awesome. Trust us. We're really awesome. Cause we have these features and these features make us even more awesome. And 
other customers like us for our features and they think we're really awesome. And we have all these logos proving that we're really awesome. <laughs> Do you think we're awesome? <laughs> right? Think like an entertainer is saying, how do I put the audience first? How do I see and speak from my audience's point of view? Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, I love that you highlighted their audience first and you brought up the word emotional a lot. When you think about bringing emotions out of your audience versus that more rote, mundane, just bland, that's not going to elicit any kind of emotion. It seems to be like that's the missing ingredient there is like, how can I elicit emotion? What does that look like to you in, in successful B2B messaging? How can I bring out emotion in my audience? Let's look first at why emotion matters. And I think a lot of people listening to this kind of understand that baseline idea that we make decisions with our emotional brain and then we rationalize it with information. I should say this, most people who are B2B leaders know that but few actually implement that. Mm -hmm. and so there's even like knowing it and understanding it. And if you understand it, you're implementing it. And you could be like, yeah, yeah, I understand. I know that. I heard it before. I heard it before. But if you're not doing it, clearly you don't really know it or understand it. Otherwise you'd be doing it. <laughs> and even the person who's listening to this, who's thinking to themselves, oh, but we sell into uh, data scientists or we sell into CFOs or whatever. They're super data-driven. They just need to see the numbers and they need the ROI proven that kind of thing. Even with that, I will push back and challenge that, that perception. And here's the quick test. Sell entirely on numbers and data and ROI and do such a good job of that that you get to the proposal. And then right before they put pen to paper to sign that proposal, call them up and insult their mother <laughs> or tell them their child is ugly. <laughs> And then tell me if they don't make decisions on emotion. Tell me if they still sign that contract because they only care about the data and the numbers. Right. <laughs> even if you are the best at the data and the numbers. So that's why I think even when it's like the most like traditional audience, even then there's still emotion at play that leads the decision making. Because what you're trying to do when you give someone information is anchor them the right way. Mm -hmm. And you need an emotional anchor for them to truly care about whatever rational information you're going to toss at them. Otherwise, it's just going to like bounce off the frontal lobe because there's nothing to anchor it down. So how do we do that? Well, the baseline formula that I work on with all of my clients is figuring out like, what's your elevator pitch? And I know you might hear elevator pitch and think, oh, it's a remote world. So I'm not even getting into an elevator with anyone. Mm -hmm. That's not the point. The elevator pitch is just the term people know. But really this is what is that 30 to 60 second value proposition that you deliver. Because if you get this right, it's not just what you would say in the very rare occasion of being in an elevator, but it's also the messaging you pull to write really good outbound emails, to have your team write really good outbound emails. Mm -hmm. It's the messaging you pull to build a really good pitch deck around. Mm -hmm. It's how you have your team kick off their demo calls when the customer asks, so tell us more about what your company does. And you've got a nice soundbite without having to drone on for five or 10 minutes, which they'll always gloss over or their eyes will always glaze over because they won't be paying attention for that long. And mm -hmm. it most likely will be saying way too much. So this idea of the elevator pitch is it's, it really is the fundamental foundational communication for your entire brand. And that's part of this shift is it's thinking beyond product here. It's thinking about your brand mm -hmm. and how your brand gets represented. So the formula uh, that I developed several years ago that we've been using with 
anyone who works with Startup Hype Man is very simple, but it's very powerful. Now, Tyler, do you know any Spanish? Like even just a couple of words or phrases? <laughs> mas o menos, mas o menos. Okay, mas yeah. o menos. So do you know what que pasa means? Que pasa, if I remember from high school, it's what's up? Like, how you doing? Hey, what's up? Que pasa? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. What's up? Yeah, que pasa, amigo, right? Like, what's up, friend? Yep. That's exactly the formula. So the, the pitch formula here is the que pasa elevator pitch. You got to tell people what's up with your business. Now, the P-A-S-A in that is an acronym. Problem, approach, solution, action. Problem, approach, solution, action. Problem, approach, solution, action. Let me talk about the logic behind this formula for a second and why this makes sense. Most companies will jump straight to solution. Mm -hmm. They'll say, we do these things and we're really good at these things. We have you know, this AI-driven whatever. We have this neuro-linguistic programming feature on our platform. And there's nothing to anchor that information. There's no context. With the K-Pasa pitch formula, when you lead with problem, you're doing three things. First, you're providing frame of reference. Second, you're providing context. The third thing you're doing there, which is the most important thing, is you're leading with empathy. You're saying, I understand the way things are today for you, target customer. I get it. It's tough. We totally understand that. We talk to people like that all the time. Here's what we do about that. Mm -hmm. And then you go into your approach and your solution. So by leading with the problem, you are creating that emotional anchor from the start mm -hmm. to where it makes sense. So that anchors the brain down to say, okay, let's learn about what this company actually does as you talk about your solution. And as you talk about your solution, talk more in terms of the results or the benefits than the what it does. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about this is inherently designed to be delivered in 60 seconds or less. But the nice thing is that with every company that I work with where we do this, 50%, usually 50%, sometimes more, of that pitch is spent on the upfront problem. Because the better you can articulate the problem, the less you need to say about your solution because the solution starts to write itself. And if you think about the mind of your buyer, your target audience, the more you are able to identify that problem for them, the more you're able to relate with them, the more they're going to think, well, this person really gets me. They really understand me. I'm willing to listen to them. But also, if you get really good at articulating that problem, they're going to start to make conclusions in their head about what the solution probably is. And that's a good thing because it's like a Jedi mind trick because it feels like it's coming from them, mm -hmm. not coming from you. Mm -hmm. And what do you, you think a buyer is going to be more likely to want to do business if it feels like it's coming from them or it feels like it's coming from you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love the idea of spending, like you said, about half the time, 50% on that pitch focused on that problem, leading with the problem. Do you think it's a better practice to focus on one big problem or do you try to present maybe a few different problems that they might have in case one might resonate more with the other? What do you typically recommend as you're building out this KPOS framework? Is the problem multiple problems or is it just let's find the problem that matches with our audience? Typically, it's going to be a lead problem that maybe has some like sub consequences to it or like some fallout from it. For example, one company that 
I've worked with is a, they work in e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Their name is SearchSpring. And the problem statement is built around how e-com teams are stuck spinning their wheels trying to get their site to work the way they want it to. So that's like the lead. And then what, what does that mean? Their search bar always pulls up incorrect items and doesn't account for spelling errors. Trying to categorize and merchandise things on the site is a manual slog and takes up so much time. So you see, like we qualify what the problem means with some additional descriptive phrases there. And the lead problem is spinning your wheels, trying to get your site to work the way you want it to. Now, one other thing that I think is important to point out here is different target audiences will have their own pitch. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say that you should get in the habit or the error of over-segmenting. So just because you have, say, just because your company sells to, let's say, a head of talent and director of people at a, in the HR department doesn't necessarily mean you automatically have two separate pitches because what's important here is to unite under the problem. So if they both experience the same problem, you've got the same pitch for each of them. You're probably just going to swap out head of people for head of talent in your phrasing. So that's where, especially when companies do have multiple target audiences, what I always look at like, okay, let's align under problem here. And instead of saying every single audience automatically gets its own unique pitch, let's see, can we lump any different titles under a common problem based on what you know about them through your interactions and your research? Got it. So it sounds like you're grouping by the problem. You're not grouping by the actual target audience. You might have a few different verticals or like you said, folks within a company that you're targeting, but you try to see which of those have the problem in common. And then, so you don't have as many of these messages. You don't have 10 of them. You have two or three of them, right? Yeah, exactly. There's a company in Australia that I've worked with called Ivana and they are a well-being marketplace. Mm -hmm. So you can book appointments with different kinds of practitioners through their platform. And then you just show up and the payments done through Mm -hmm. their platform. So they actually, when we were first starting, they identified 19 different practitioner types, chiropractor, podiatrist, physical therapist, massage therapist, Ayurvedic healer, myotherapist, acupuncturist. Wow. And so there's a lot. And then it went on and on up to, I think, 19 different that's a lot. Types of practitioners. Yeah, it's a ton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what we said was, all right, do any of these people face the same problem? And it turned out, yes. And so we were able to drill it down to, I think, from 19, we united it under six problems. And it was roughly three to four practitioner types would fit under a single problem. Mm-hmm. And that makes it a lot easier to just wrap your head around, <laughs> remember what's what. And then even run like messaging cadences in outreach and like when doing outreach. And in doing that, we, again, you just, if it's an acupuncturist, they're under the same problem profile as the Ayurvedic healer, you just swap out, you know, title. Exactly. So one thing that we were discussing before we came on is this idea of building a story stack and you, you likened it to every company has a tech stack, which would be you know, the different software tools that they use to execute all the business operations and functions that they need to keep everything going. What does that mean to build a story stack? And how is that different than a tech stack? Yeah. So again, everyone does have a tech stack and they know their tech stack like the back of their hand. And that's good. But the tech doesn't mean a whole lot if you don't really know how to execute on it the right way. And I think like 
the sales marketing tech doesn't matter if you don't have the right messaging. Mm -hmm. So you could have outreach IO, you could have gong or or wingman. I know you've had Shruti on the show before, right? Mm -hmm. But software alone is not going to get you anywhere. There needs to be something else happening that makes the software run at its peak. And that's where I say, okay, if you've got a tech stack, if you've got a sales and marketing tech stack, you should also have a story stack. And the story stack is comprised of the different layers of messaging needed to develop a scalable sales narrative. A scalable sales narrative allows you to easily align with marketing and have everyone from the CEO to the CRO to the head of sales to the head of marketing to the SDR lead to the SDRs to the AEs, AE head and the AEs all be aligned under a unified message. So again, like you're putting your brand forward, not putting a particular product feature forward. Mm -hmm. And the components of the story stack, whenever we create this with companies, is we do a demo audit first. So we look at, okay, what's the demo process here? Because that'll help us not only figure out voice of customer, but also we look at just out of the gate, what are the areas where we're being way too feature heavy? or we're positioning things the wrong way? Mm-hmm. And how do we reformat the flow of this call? One of the things I'll just quickly say as an aside that I frequently see when I'm doing this is a failure to appropriately understand timing. So this is just like a hard like sales tip here. The standard way, and in your work, you probably see this as well. The standard way a rep will ask about timing to a prospect is something like, so what's your timing for something like this? Or like, mm-hmm. when are you looking to launch, right? Yeah. Service level, it's a fine question, but it doesn't always t- provide the right response or the response that's going to help you. Hmm. Another way I'll hear it asked is, in a perfect world, when would you want this live? Yep. The challenge is we don't live in a perfect world. We never have. <laughs> <laughs> you're asking a hypothetical <laughs> question, you're going to get a hypothetical response. That's a good point. So just quick tip on this. What I recommend is just understand the nature of timing. And there are two or three timelines really that exist. There's the timeline that got you to this call, the timeline coming out of this call, and the actual like launch date and what happens after that. Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is hedge against what they tell you and ask something like, hey, I'm just curious, how come we're having this call today and we didn't have it like a month ago and we're not having it a month from now? Mm. So now you're going to find like an anchor event that's driving why it's happening. Even if you cold outreach them, <laughs> they still agreed to take the meeting. Right. People don't just take meetings because they're casually curious. They don't <laughs> waste their time like that. <laughs> so you'll get an idea of what's led to this point. And then when you ask your question about, okay, when do you want this live? Hedge against that by saying, okay, what happens if you don't go live by them? Mm-hmm. So now you start to understand consequences of them not having that day. And maybe they say Oh, if we push it out another month, that's fine. But now if they said July 1 and they can push it out another month, July 1 is not as hard of a date as you initially thought it was. That's not a very hard anchor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But if they say, oh, well, we have to get it launched by July 1 because these other three things are happening and we can't unlock those without them. Now you've got a driving event to build build backwards from. Right. Sorry, that was an aside, but that's just one thing I've recognized in doing a lot of demo audits, failure to ask about timing. Yeah, it's a great point. From the demo audit, we're able to create the K-Pasta elevator pitch. Mm -hmm. We create some frameworks for doing outbound cold prospecting and really like personalized prospecting from that as well. Yep. We create what I call your brand manifesto. 
if you're going to put a flag in the ground and say, this is who we are, this is what we represent, this is our point of view and our belief system, that's what this document does. That's what this manifesto does. Mm -hmm. And it serves as a great tool as you onboard new employees to know beyond product, what are they getting on for? Yep. But also you can send it as additional collateral to prospects so they get more indoctrinated into your belief system. And it's where we look at where do we take elements of this to repackage the story and find ways we can like brand knowledge. So our point of view becomes like a branded thing that, that we put out these viewpoints right. in the market. After the manifesto, we create the pitch deck. So we figure out where in the sales process are you going to leverage a deck? And I know people have varying opinions on this. I'll tell you, if you think your buyers don't like a deck, if you think a deck doesn't help, you're right. And it's because the decks you've been using or the decks they're used to seeing are terrible. <laughs> So when you have a really good narrative-driven sales deck, a really good narrative-driven pitch deck, you get emotional buy-in mm -hmm. from your audience. So that way, when you do show the product, you don't have to show so much of it because they already get it. So whatever you're showing is just more for like visual understanding to, right. get, like, to get a picture of it. So then you're out of the feature battle. Right. There's that word emotion again that we brought up yeah. earlier. It sounds, that's a theme here is just like inserting emotion into this process where right now it's probably lacking, right? There's probably zero emotion. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's, it's not thinking like an entertainer. It's coming into these calls saying, let me beat you over the head for 45 minutes with a walkthrough of our admin dashboard instead of focusing on them and then having this logical walkthrough through the deck mm -hmm. that says, here's why doing something about this makes sense. And then from there, if necessary, you do a more like formal demo, but yep. it's short, it's compressed. Significantly. Right. Right. Exactly. Last couple of things in the story stack after the pitch deck is putting together case studies and some talk tracks around that. Mm -hmm. And then also just understanding at a rep level, their own like personal brands, what is their personal why and how does that connect to the company's larger mission and the company's point of view that we've articulated through the story stack mm -hmm. that stack if you think about, think of that as like a mixtape, like a cassette tape. Mm -hmm. And those are all the individual tracks on the tape. So that goes inside of a, a boom box, the, the cassette player. And that player is running ongoing demo call reviews and ongoing outbound prospecting reviews. And so the story stack, like it's playing through that and it keeps getting better over time because we're doing the reviews, we're making modifications and updates and additions based on what the market is saying. Yep, exactly. Yeah, no, I love that. And you bring up mixtape. I'll be remiss if I know that you're a big Hamilton fan and oh, yeah. you even brought up that Hamilton and the kind of story arc of the Broadway musical infiltrate some of the work and frameworks that you've just been describing. Where does Hamilton come into play here? Why do you like it? But then how does it yeah. come into play with this B2B messaging? Aside from the litany of references we can make that just don't throw away your shot on your call. Like, right. Aside from all of those turns of phrase we can throw out. As over the last several years, as I've just done deep dives into studying storytelling, what I found was, and part of it's fanboying, but I, I backed it up with some research as well. <laughs> I've personally found that the best story that's, pretty much ever been told is Hamilton. And I looked at the way they structured that. And the interesting thing is the way that, so when I saw that and I, I broke it down, I was like, okay, how does this apply to business? And I specifically said, okay, this is perfect for a presentation. Like this format here is perfect in a sales environment to create a pitch deck around. Mm -hmm. And then when I looked at that, I did some more research and I found, you know what? Interestingly enough, 
almost to a T. This is how Steve Jobs delivered the original iPhone keynote. And you know what? Almost to a T, this is how Martin Luther King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. Hmm. And almost to a T, if you go back to um, William Shakespeare and the play Julius Caesar, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there is like the famous part of Julius Caesar is Mark Anthony giving his Brutus is an honorable man speech. Mm -hmm. And the way he convinces the audience to be against Brutus is by following this same structure almost to a T. Mm -hmm. So I I have to imagine Lin-Manuel Miranda was at least partially influenced by Shakespeare. And just a quick overview of it, just a hyper version of it. If you look at the construct of Hamilton, they give away the ending right up front. Yep. First song, Aaron Burr. I'm the damn fool that shot him. <laughs> yep. And they open with how does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman. They basically open with this thesis question. Yep. Hey, how does someone who came from nothing end up having everything and, and become an American legend? Yep. Oh, and by the way, I killed him. <laughs> now you'd think with that in mind that people would be like, I'm good. Got, got right. the ending. But that's not the case. What people are now hooked into is, okay, I got to see how this unfolds. And so then the play has its story arc, but there's three specific like anchor events that I turn to, which is the three duels of the play. Because mm-hmm. it ends with Burr shooting Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert for people who haven't seen this. <laughs> or heard um, the opening number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. It ends with Burr shooting Hamilton. But if they just did that out of the blue without the right like priming to get there, people would be like, how could that be? Like, how could that happen? What, like, what a monster. But you don't. You leave the theater, you leave lit watching it on Disney Plus, really reflecting on Hamilton's legacy, which guess what did they ask at the front? <laughs> hey, how does someone become, how does someone build a legacy? And right. that's what you leave thinking about. So to get there, they had to have a duel that set up like the terms of the world in 1700s America. So you have to buy into the terms of the world. And then they have a second duel where an important character actually dies. And you learn, okay, there's real impact to to getting involved in this, which sets you up for that third duel, which just feels like an inevitable ending. Hmm not a big surprise, but you feel good because you were like ready for that, right? You're like, you got built up to that point. And so that same way you can model a pitch deck after and set the terms of the world as your customers know it Mm -hmm. and start to introduce like the market forces that are shifting things in that world Mm -hmm. and then show the impact of doing something and not doing something. Right. And then the inevitable ending, that third duel, if you will, is, oh, by the way, our company has a product that perfectly fits in with doing something. Right. Let's talk about it. And so the interesting thing in that model, and we've built some really interesting stories about it that have had a lot of success in convincing customers, getting big enterprise accounts, more easily circulated internally. I oftentimes hear on calls, people like the rep will say, I'll send you a recording of this meeting or the person will ask for a recording of this meeting so they can share it internally. Mm -hmm. Ain't nobody watching a recording, a 45 minute of a recording (laughs) of a meeting that they were not on. I'm telling you, right? That never happens. (laughs) Yeah. So the recording never gets viewed internally. If you've got a really narrative driven deck, now they get the deck that's so easily forwardable and every stakeholder internally can easily flip through that and understand exactly why you would make sense. Because not just that you have a deck, but also your deck is not slapping them over the head with a slide about hey, here's a picture of our global headquarters. Mm -hmm. Here's all the clients (laughs) we've worked with. Trust us, we work with big names. 
here's our, we, we promise we have 99.9% uptime. Right. And here's now here's every feature, product. every feature yeah. of our product that you could ever yeah. know. Here's the 25 hour demo. <laughs> that might get forwarded just because it's an easy PDF, yeah. but it's not going to make anyone care. The narrative driven deck that follows a structure I just talked through. Now you've got something that gets people to say, okay, we got to get this ball rolling. Right. I, like, I see this, let's get our next meeting with them. And it's going to accelerate time to close. It needs to be a standalone item. It needs to be able, because like you said, no one's going to go back and listen to the recording. No one's going to. So it needs to stand on its own and make, evoke some of that emotion for those that aren't on the call. So I do agree. People talk about pitch deck or no pitch deck. What is your leave behind at the end of the meeting? Like the recording's Mm -hmm. not going to get listened to, but the pitch deck might get shared. And if that becomes the end to a key decision maker or an influencer, whoever internally who wasn't on the meeting, that could be the opening for the next call. Uh, Raj, I know we can go on, but I want to pause there for today. How can my listeners find you online uh, if they want to connect? I'm highly active on LinkedIn. I'm probably overly active. Uh, <laughs> so just find me on there, search my name. If you also type in Raj Nation, R-A-J Nation, all one word, uh, I'll show up on LinkedIn. And then I actually, so one of the things that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation was the K-Pasa pitch. Yep. What my team has put together is a unique link for your listeners okay. with a K-Pasa pitch guide. So it's got a download on it of the of a pitch guide to start to construct your own K-Pasa pitch with some discussion questions in there and, and some formatting. It'll be helpful, especially because if you listen to this and you're like in the car, you're going to do yourself a disservice if you're in the car and trying to take notes. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. If, so if you're multitasking and you want to follow up on this concept and put it in play, just go to startuphypeman.com slash Tyler. Okay. Super easy URL. Startuphypeman.com slash Tyler. And you can get this K-Pasa pitch guide from there. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. So definitely check that out on our site um, wherever you get podcasts. Raj, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a blast. We'll definitely do it again sometime soon. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. You can find all the links discussed and the show notes at thesaleslift.com. That's the, T-H-E, sales, S-A-L-E-S, lift, L-I-F-T, dot com. Have questions for me? Email me at tyler at thesaleslift.com. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And we hope today's show brings you the sales lift your business needs. Remember, ideas plus action equals results. You've got new ideas. Now it's time to take action and the results will follow. See you next time.